Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Please be warned that the details of this case are graphic and may be difficult to hear. It is not an episode for young listeners. He would tell her that my thoughts are your thoughts and your thoughts are my thoughts, things like that. She just thought that that's the way life was. I'm Yardley. And I'm Zibby. And we're fascinated by true crime. So we invited our friends, detectives Dan and Dave, to sit down with us and share their most interesting cases. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins, and we're detectives in small town USA. Dave investigates sex crimes and child abuse. Dan investigates violent crimes, and together we've worked on hundreds of cases, including assaults, robberies, murders, burglaries, sex abuse, and child abuse. Names, locations, and certain details of these cases have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. Today on Small Town Dicks, we're very pleased to welcome back Sergeant David, How are you today, sir? I'm good, thank you. And we have the usual suspects. Detective Dave. And Detective Dan. So today we're talking about a case that you worked way back in 1991. Correct, yeah. Tell us how this began for you. I was still in patrol at the time. I was a field training officer and had a recruit with me. We were working graveyard shift and I was kind of showing around the city. It was like our second or third night together. And during the training process, they put you with three different coaches. And I was the coach that was supposed to take him out. And there's a school on a main street, but behind the school is a big rural property that is going to be developed for a housing project. But the only thing that's in there right now is the streets at that time. The streets were in the cul-de-sacs were all put in there, and it was probably 50, 60 acres of land back there, and it was a famous spot for people to go back and ditch stolen cars and for miners to drink, and it was just a high-crime area. So it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and the recruit was driving, and I told him to pull into the back of that area to show him around and see if we could find anybody back there. It was late winter, early spring, I remember, and it was really cold out that night. And as we pulled down to the back of this property, I see a station wagon parked off in one of the cul-de-sacs, just backed in looking out. I said, go down, there's a car down there. We went around it and you could see two people in the front seat of the station wagon and pulled behind it and stopped. And I said, go contact the driver. And one of the good things about being a coach, because you can, sometimes they don't think there's only one cop in there. So you get to get out on the passenger side and walk up and kind of see everything that's going in the going on in the car. And I remember when I walked up at the on the car, there was this, Older man, 
in his 50s. In the back seat was a wheelchair that was all folded up. And the front seat was a young girl. And I, as I walked up onto the passenger side, she didn't know I was there. I looked down and I saw that she was just wearing a tank top, like a small little tank top and a pair of shorts that were like running shorts and no shoes, no nothing else. And immediately I just thought, well, this doesn't look good. Because it was cold out. It's really cold out. She was young. And this guy was obviously way out of her age group. And I was listening to my recruit and he was telling the recruit that his parents owned this property back there. And he lived just a short distance away, and at times he would come and check on it, make sure no one was dumping property or doing illegal things back there. And um, I was listening to this and, and watching her, and she was just pretty nonchalant. And he got my recruit, got the driver's ID, and brought it back. And I met him behind the car, and I said, "What's his story?" And he told me basically what I just heard that he was back there checking on the property. I, and I said, "Did you ask who the girl is?" And he said, no, I didn't ask that. And uh, I said, well, let's go find out. So go back up there and talk to him, and I'm going to ask her to get out of the car. So I walked up, and I knocked on the window, and she looked up and saw me, and I asked her to step out of the car. And the thing that struck me most about her originally was how mature she was as far as her conversation with me. She was very matter-of-fact, and she had this almost a, kind of a thousand-yard stare adult-like look on her face. And, and how old was she? She was 11, I found out, at this time. And I noticed when she walked out that she was only dressed like I described in these little tiny running shorts and this tank top. And I asked her what she was doing back there. And she said, I'm just back here with my dad. I said, that's your dad? She said, yeah. And I said, do you have any brothers or sisters? She said, no. And I go, what are you doing back here? And she said, well, my grandparents own this property. We're just back here checking. And my dad said he thought he saw lights, so he came out here. I said, were you in bed when he came and got you? And she said, yeah. I said, okay, did you have time to grab clothes or what? Because this is kind of cold out here. And she says, well, yeah, that's why I don't want to be standing out here, officer. Oh. And she was kind of standoffish to me. Wow. And, I, and uh, I said, well, just entertain me for a minute. Where do you go to school? Because it's a school night. It's like 2 o'clock in the morning. And she said, I go to this school right here. And she gave the name of the school. I asked her what grade she was in, and she was appropriate for her age. I also asked her how old she was. She told me she had just turned 11. But the whole thing was weird. And so I, I, I kind of was at this point where I, I knew something was wrong. So I just looked at her and asked her, tell me the truth. Are you all right? And she looked at me really indignantly and she said, of course I'm all right. Why wouldn't I be? I'm here with my dad. Wow. Like, why are you asking me this? So I go, all right. So get back in the car where it's warm. We took his name down. We took her name and date of birth down. And I went back and asked him where his mom and dad lived and what their names were. And uh, he told me gave me an address that wasn't too far away, and we let him go. Got back and discussed the thing with my recruit, like, what was weird about that? And he really didn't see much weird about it, but it wasn't too surprising for a recruit, I suppose. I said, drive over to this parent's house. And it's 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the morning, but we're going to wake him up anyway. And so we drive over to the parent's house and knock on the door, and this woman comes to the door, and I ask her if she's so-and-so, and she said yes. I said, do you have a son named Hank? And they said, yeah, I do. Where does he live? She asked me why I was asking. And I said, well, we found some of his stuff in the property you own behind the school. And she said, I don't own any property behind the school. I said, oh, I was under the impression that you owned all the property behind the school and where they're developing. She, she goes, no, I don't own that. I said, okay, well, that's fine. I did ask her one more question if she had a granddaughter. She said, yes, I do have a granddaughter named Julie. And I asked her how old she was, and she didn't really know. That's the thing that was kind of interesting about it. She goes, oh, I think she's 10, maybe 11. 
Huh. I'm not really sure. I said, okay. So we left. One of the things that I did after they went home. You mean Hank and Julie. Right. We went over there about an hour to make sure their car was there. That he was telling the truth about where they lived for sure. And we got all that confirmed. And she, in fact, did live there with him. Throughout the night, you know, we're talking about this case with my recruit, and I wrote an information report based on everything that I observed that night. And, and I did that because I knew something was wrong, but I just couldn't do anything about it that night. And our dispatchers have access to the school registry of everybody who's in school in the two cities around here of every school. Mm. And the thing that really obviously confirmed what I was thinking was correct was we looked in there and there was no record of her under that name being at any school. No, no Julie. Julie. No, no Julie anywhere with that name and that age. And we checked not only this, our city, but the neighboring city, which is, you know, well over 100,000 people and no record of her anywhere. So when you ran Hank's name, did you find anything? He had a record. And the interesting thing about his record, in 1979, he'd been convicted of sex abuse of a minor in a neighboring county. And then I knew something was really wrong. Oh, my God. If he had a record for sex abuse of a minor, how is he even allowed to be near one? Yeah. This is pre-having to register being a sex offender. Oh, wow. Right. I guess there was a time when you didn't have to register. Nowadays, he would have a prohibition from being around minors or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not his own daughter, but I just had this feeling the whole night that something was really wrong here, especially the way she acted. And I hadn't been around... I'd been in the police game for probably about eight or nine years at that time. It was right before I transferred to detectives, but I had enough training, enough experience to know that there was something really wrong. And she was distributing all the symptoms of somebody who had been just either beat down or totally brainwashed, is what would be a good grooming. Grooming, yeah. Groomed to, to an extent that I don't think you hardly see very much in your career. Because she had such presence about her, she was so mm -hmm. well spoken, very articulate. She spoke almost like an adult. Yeah. And was like indignant when I asked her if she was okay. So you have a bad feeling about this situation. What do you do next? So I write this report up with all my observations. Then one of the detectives that I knew worked those cases back there was an experienced guy, and I took it personally back to him to talk to him about it. And this is Detective Jefferson, right? Right. He was really interested in the case, and so he started doing research about the people that were involved, Hank and Julie, and he tried to find birth record of Julie everywhere in our county and couldn't find one. There was no birth record anywhere of her. What? Or to him. He was not listed anywhere as being a father of any kids in our county or in our hospitals or anything like that. No record of Hank being Julie's father, biological or not? No. But he was listed as a resident of your county? Or yes. Your... So now, do you and your team start looking into these past sex abuse charges against Hank? Yes. Detective Jefferson gets this information, and he realizes what it is and starts digging into it some more. And because of Hank's past sex abuse, and he had completed post-prison supervision on that, which really was a kind of a joke about how much time he did for the first one. And that was involving a nine-year-old girl in a neighboring county. And in part of his psychological evaluation after they're going to let him out on parole, he has to talk about that case. And this guy had displayed a really bunch, not only predatory 
symptoms, but real narcissistic symptoms. He basically tells the psychiatric board that, yeah, she was nine, but she was really mature for a nine-year-old. Oh, my God. And one of the things that the detective did find that was really disturbing was he's running this guy's name as far as records through our children's services and everything like that, trying to find her, and finally found a record that he had a child at that time. And it was when she was between five and six years old, a prostitute called Children's Services and basically made a report, what we would call, we have these reports come in all the time, and this is kind of the infancy of that program. And so they didn't really get reviewed properly, in my opinion, knowing what I know now. But basically what she said was that Hank had hired her to come to her house for services, and the services she performed that day were to use a vibrator on herself in front of a five- or six-year-old girl so she could, quote, know what a woman is for. Oh, my God. And that was in the narrative of this report. And this, this is like five years prior to when we find her behind the school. And so there's all kinds of signs going on at this time in this little girl's life where the state could have intervened and didn't for whatever reason. And we came to find out that the children's services didn't even go out and check. You're kidding. <gasps> no. This was in a neighboring county? This was in our county. Wow. And are you able put, to put together that the five- or six-year-old that the prostitute was performing in front of was, in fact, Julie? No, we weren't because they never, never went out. Right. But right. that was your assumption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, was this all coming to light in the same night? No, this is coming. I would have talked to the detective probably the next morning when they came in. I was getting off graveyard at the time. And so I would have gone and talked to him either the day of or the next day. So now that you have all this information about Hank, what do you do with it? Because when you come upon him with Julie, they aren't actually committing a crime. Well, finally, he is able to get enough information to do a search warrant for some type of sex abuse based on his prior record and based on the fact that he was with a minor again at these weird hours. And it's pretty thin, knowing what I know now, but it's better than not doing anything at all. The only other thing we could have done was we go out and knock on his door and ask her and him if everything was all right, and it would probably been more of the same of what we got behind the school. Right. So the search warrant gets served. They're both home. I got to go along because of initiating the case, and it was good education for me at the time, too. But she separated out, he separated out, and he's just in total denial. It's my daughter, you know, it's this and that. And they started going through his paperwork and records. And one of the things that they found in her room, actually, was a handwritten note. It was handwritten by her, obviously, and it had a list of sex acts. There's probably a dozen, at least, on there. Some of them were childish in what they were describing. But along with all of them, at the end was a a dollar figure, how much they were. You're kidding me. No. Oh, God. It's like a menu of services. It was a menu of services. At the very bottom, she had drawn an erect penis that was obviously ejaculating and written guaranteed underneath it. Oh, my God. What? What was the condition of the house? It was neat. It was a neat. Not like the typical drug search warrant house that we go into? I mean, the house is well kept, and uh, she obviously was, she performed a lot of things around the house, you know, because she obviously was very well schooled in that. She's an employee. Pretty much, yeah. Oh, so you mean like, like domestic? Yeah, and that's one of the reasons she had her, I think, too, was not only, he treated her kind of like a wife. She took care of him. Yeah. Can I ask about her room? Was it like a girly room? Was oh, it like no. a typical, no? no? No. What was it? It was real sterile. Huh. I mean, she could sit there and tell you about um, 
the migration of whales because she read about it or something like that. But she didn't have stuff like little girls would have in her room. Yeah. And, uh, and she just didn't know any better. And we found that he'd been making frequent trips to Vegas and Reno. And so now everything's really coming to light. And this is kind of before we had a child advocacy center also where we'd take an interview a child. So our interviewing with children at that time was not what it should have been, actually. But we also know that people who have been subjected to this kind of abuse don't necessarily tell right away. It's so disturbing. What happens to Julie at that point? They took her to a separate place somewhere. Children's Services got involved at that point to foster care. What about Hank? He gets arrested. Well, actually, he doesn't get arrested right away because we're still trying to put together stuff and, and talk to her. And she never would divulge any kind of anything. The note doesn't know anything about that. Julie really? just ignored it, even though you said you had the note? She yeah. Just... I think she said it was just a joke oh, at my. that time. And you think about it, it... It speaks to the the type of programming and grooming that this guy uh, poured into this girl's life to get her to where she's, this is the story, you stick to it, this is your answer for this type of question. He did a, I hate to say a great job, but that's what these guys do. They they get people to cooperate with them. They're manipulative. We ended up getting enough information where he confessed to digitally penetrating her at times, and also uh, having her perform oral sex on him. Oh, God. And when you say digitally, you mean with his finger? Right. And he was in a wheelchair at the time, and like I said, 50 years old, and I don't really, you know, he, I didn't know what his health situation was, but, you know, it was the same way when the prostitute was there, too, because she described the guy as being in a wheelchair and having her perform for this little girl. And, and she said, he never touched me. That's disgusting. Oh, God. To me, the most fascinating and interesting thing about this case as far as how the hell could you get away with something like this was how he got control of this little girl. We were able to find during the records of, of the search warrant the name of a person a couple of counties away from here who Hank was writing periodic checks to, to her. I think it was $1,100 a month. And in the research of her, she is listed as the birth mother for Julie in this neighboring county. And the father listed on the birth certificate is Hank, but the birth mother is much younger. When they went to interview her, they found out that she had had a baby, she'd been in a car accident and had some pretty serious head trauma during this wreck, and she was an acquaintance of Hank's, but never did they were they ever together. And we basically found out that Hank purchased Julie from her after her accident when she was just two years old for a parcel of land and an agreement to pay some kind of money where she would keep getting for disabilities or watching the kid, basically, because she got disabled in an accident, and I think the state was going to pay her a stipend every month to help with her child. Right. He said he would take over the care of the child, which would mean she would not get that money, which means he was going to make up for it out of his personal account every month, along with giving her a parcel of land in that county so she could put her trailer on it. A parcel of land and a stipend for her kid? That is unbelievable. It's a living nightmare. And if you think about it, $1,100 a month in 1991, that's significant. Right. So he basically had Julie since she was two years old. But was he actually her biological father? No. No. We found out he had falsified the birth certificate and basically purchased this little kid so oh. he could make her into what she was when we found her. Oh, jeez. Did the mother have any idea? No, she was really kind of not coherent. 
Because of the accident or she was a drug because, addict? Because or? of the accident. Uh. And I don't know how upstanding a person she was before that accident, but it's like she had no family. Nobody was looking for this girl. She was just a lost little girl who got purchased by a pervert, and God knows how long she would have been like that. It sounds like at least once you uncovered the situation, the investigation was fairly straightforward, no? Well, the investigation went on for almost a year after that. He got arrested. He was in jail, and they were still trying to figure out what went on with this little girl, and they had several interviews with him also. But what basically happened with her was after he purchased her, he completely shielded her from the outside world. She had never been to school. He had not let her socialize with anybody else, but he homeschooled her. He homeschooled her. She, was, she could read. She was very smart. <laughs> and uh, it's like if you grew up and you thought that this is what people do as far as the sexual stuff, she knew no different. She knew nothing different, and she didn't think anything of it. And then, obviously, she's going to have to adjust to real life sometime. And he couldn't let her have friends because she would realize that, hey, you know, my friend's dads don't do all this crap to me. So she just thought that was the way the world was from her short little life. Oh, dear. And she was totally, basically brainwashed. He would tell her that my thoughts are your thoughts and your thoughts are my thoughts, things like that. And so she just, she just thought that it was just, that's the way life was. And that's why she was so standoffish to us, because she saw us as an intrusion into her life when we were trying to help her. So they pegged your bullshit meter that night on the, on the traffic stop. Oh, big time. The bad part about that night was I knew she was going home with him, and I couldn't do anything about it. It's like, you know, I, I thought about actually taking her and taking her to foster care, but it's like, how do I write this up? How do I explain that? Yeah, and looking back now and what I know now in my 33 years of experience is I probably would have done it because... If somebody like that, you spook sometimes, they're so narcissistic, they might just get rid of her because they're really not tied to her. Mm, wow. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, I wouldn't be able to sleep that day thinking that. I didn't think that at the time, obviously, but nowadays I would say, no, no, we're going to go with that kid before he figures out we're on to him. And how would you pull that off? Do you have to have grounds or can you go off of like a gut instinct, this isn't on something right? Like, on something like children, yeah, you can, go, I, you can go off on a gut instinct. I mean, you might get in trouble for it, but to me, that's worth it. Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360-degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break-in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is Simply Safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe. Best Home Security Systems 2024. 
and Newsweek ranked it best customer service in home security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. It's gonna be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole-body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH-balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits, which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small town fam, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is SMALLTOWN. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code SMALLTOWN for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code SMALLTOWN at L-U-M-E deodorant.com. Do it. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. I want to talk about Pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are, what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you want to have. And then from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while, and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. They have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty-free, and it's the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation 
and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it. And when you arrest Hank, Julie gets put in foster care while you continue this investigation? Yes. And how does she react to that? Children's Service did a good thing. They got her involved with a psychologist. And as he actually is in jail at this time, and they're working on his case. And there's so many charges nowadays that could be given to him. But he's only charged with sex abuse, sodomy, and providing pornographic material to a minor. Basically, on the stuff we found, he also had a lot of porn that he would show her, you know, they, instead of watching, you know, Lion King, they would watch, you know, Debbie Does Dallas all oh, day. Oh, my God. So they start slowly working with her, and she gets integrated into school. And that was kind of another issue for her because she had never been socialized. But she was a really smart kid, pretty kid, and she was really trying. I kind of give everybody credit, her for pulling through it and whoever was working with her at the time because it was a slow process. Was Hank accountable at all? He had actually pled guilty to the the two felony charges, and they threw out the providing the porn charge for some reason to... What? Probably to expedite the, you know, the sentencing. Ugh. He actually pled guilty before she was through her, her therapy and was sentenced to prison, sentenced to a prison term of only six years. That's which, it? Yeah, which is, for those two crimes, you can ask Detective Dave that we now have minimum mandatory sentences for things like that, and he wouldn't have seen the light of day at his age. Nowadays. With those, with those two. And... If this was our case nowadays, we'd still be charging him. It's just one of those things that it was not that we didn't think it was serious at that time. It was just we were doing what was kind of going on in the legal system at that time. And the real failure there, I think, too, is also that this guy had done it in 1979 and been convicted of it and was out again. And, you know, you look at how parents would look at something like that. Why is he even out here? Yeah. And and that's why we have minimum mandatory sentences now, because, frankly, the judges in this state sometimes have not meted out sentences that are, are protecting anybody. Well, the system's evolved since then, certainly. Sure, and you can ask Detective Dave or Detective Dan, people that are predatory sex offenders like that, you're not going to ever cure them. They're not going to be cured. I don't care what anyone says. Mm-hmm. And you think about the people who got victimized after the system had them, and you're looking at, why am I paying my taxes to you? You're supposed to protect this. It's really frustrating. Did you ever piece together everything that happened to her when she was under his ownership, if you will? About a year after she was separated from him and he was sent off to prison, she finally divulged basically what was happening with her. And it was basically tons of sex abuse by him selling her services to people not only in this town, but mostly out of town. They would go for a week at a time to Reno. And I don't know at the time how he advertised her, if he had this underground group of friends. We never did figure that out. But they would get a motel, and she would entertain men who came there to have sex with a child. Oh, God. And that was how she basically grew up from the time she was probably five and a half to when she was 11. In her account of things, you know, a year after the fact, was she relaying this information now with a newfound perspective? Like, was there sadness? Was there an emotional response to 
what she now understood wasn't right? Yeah, she did. She actually invited some of us involved in her case to her graduation. Really? And uh, when she graduated high school, it was actually really kind of a acknowledgement by her that she had probably not been very nice to us when we were just trying to help. And she also, I think, realized too that the life she was in was not right and by, you know, by any means right and was trying to just do everything she can to normalize it. She faced some, some tough stuff at school because I think it got around kind uh. of what her past was. And I really don't know how because we take a lot of effort and try to, you know, shelter kids from that. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason I think maybe this um, sentence was what I consider so very light because they didn't want to put her up there and drag her through that. And this is before we have a lot of the protective measures we have now for children. And what did Hank have to say for himself? Hank is very narcissistic. Part of his parole, he got paroled about six months early, was that he could not come to this county anymore because Julie was still living here. He wanted to visit Julie. Oh, no. No, he actually told the parole board that he would like to visit her still because he, you know, has a, quote, bond with her. Part of his parole and part of the argument was that he could never come to the county again. And, And I think that they did that. And they didn't really say why in their in their findings of that. But I think they did that because they realized this what this guy did was so awful and off the wall that we haven't sentenced him enough. We haven't punished him enough or something like that. And they hadn't. And so they tried to banish him from the county to make, I don't know, who feel better. Did it work? Because you can't really regulate impulse control. No. And for the, all the things he did, it, it should be, obviously, you'd have a no contact order with her. But... They had a real difficult time arguing why he couldn't, you know, he had to pass through this county to drive to the coast. He'd be in violation or he had to pass whatever, you know. And he actually, I think, prevailed on being able to come to the county. Ugh. But the fact that he even argued it just astounds me because he— Yeah, the, the audacity yeah. is it's, it's, it's completely absurd. And, and the fact that he wanted to see her again. And, and at that time in her life, you know, she had— grown up and was well into high school, and I'm sure she wanted nothing to do with him. That's the last person. And I know why he wanted to see her. He wanted to try to bring her back to the fold, I think, you know, but she was probably getting too old for him anyway. That's disgusting. Do you know where she is now? I do, yes. Is she okay? <laughs> she She's actually, I do know, I've kept a little bit of tabs on her. She's got a good life. She's married, and she went to school, and I think she's just fine. I mean, I don't know that, but I, I just... I. From the looks she's of things, made the she, best of a really yeah, awful situation. She really has, and she's she's survived it, and she I think she realizes that, and that part of it is good, you know. But this guy, this guy stole her childhood. Yeah, you know, to me, it's the same thing. Even though she's not dead, you know, he took a big part of her life, probably the most important part of her life, away. A lot of your good memories and things like that, and they're full of nightmares, I'm sure. And knowing now what is normal, and the fact that he could walk away from something like that with what I consider not even a slap on the wrist is, is crazy to me. It's sort of miraculous in a way when you hear that somebody's even slightly well-adjusted after going through something like that. It sounds like her spirit, with, like she's really intelligent in a way, I hate to say it, but a good student mm-hmm. of life. So if someone's saying this is how it goes, I mean, it sounds like she sort of, when she was out of that situation, she took to it and thought, okay, I'm going to readjust and try and be a good student in mm-hmm. this direction. Does that sound accurate? No, you're right. I mean, I got that sense from her when I talked to her that night. Mm. You're scary smart for being out here this time of the night dressed like that. There's something. I mean, she wouldn't even like a child wow. when she talked to me out there. I mean, it's like a 30-year-old saying, why are you bothering me, officer? Uh, that's one of the biggest things that struck me. And I think that 
I think she was probably genetically a smart person. She was born that way, an intelligent person, and obviously a strong person because she, it took her that long to come basically unravel what was wrong with her and explain to everybody what happened and trust people enough. Because I'm sure he tells her all the time, don't trust people, don't trust right. the police. All I want to do is take you away from me and there's more and more isolation of her. And I think that once she realized that that wasn't the way it was, she let her guard down and just basically gave herself over to letting it all out. That is remarkable, though, that you could, if you've been in that lifestyle since you were two, and this one person that you, the only person you've had any real contact with is telling you don't trust anyone, to find a way to actually trust others is really speaks to her character. Yeah, it does. And, you know, he wasn't, other than the sexual acts, you know, he wasn't physically beating her or anything like that. He actually, I'm never going to say he treated her well, but he provided he for her. her. He fed he... her and he taught her to read and write and all those things. And she was good at that. And because I think she was smart to begin with, actually. He didn't have to beat her down because she was a blank slate when he got her. Correct. She's two years old. So he basically just reprograms her right there. And there was nothing else you had to wipe off of her mind. She yeah. was She was easy to control. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. You said there's some remarkable stuff in the... Um, report that you gave us, and even though we can read it ourselves, we always love to know what you firsthand have to say about what's in it. What are some of the things that you remember that stand out? Well, it gives a synopsis of the case, and it talks about his previous case with his nine-year-old. And after being a cop for 33 years, if a layperson read that, he would be like, what is wrong with our system uh, that mm-hmm. this can keep happening? And the fact that had she not run across law enforcement at some point, where would she be right now? Sure. Because that's the thing that I, that scares me about it is because that this could be happening a lot. And like you said, when, when her usefulness is gone, at some point he has to turn her out into the world. She's going to grow up. What's his plan then? She's going to go out to the world and realize, you know, you have been an asshole extraordinaire for how many years? And he can't do that. I mean, these are the kind of people who murder people. Right. Absolutely. Because they cannot afford, they can't keep him forever. And at some point, you know, either he's going to be gone or she's going to be gone. It's so random how you came upon them mm-hmm. that uh, that's what's so striking. It's like you were, you know, in the middle of basically of a coaching session. Yeah. And uh, you went to an area that happened to have a lot of riffraff. And then you saw this and thought, okay, it's a teachable moment potentially mm-hmm. that turned into this major reveal that you certainly weren't out looking for specifically. Um, So it's painful to think about how these things are happening in corners of the world where we're just not looking or wouldn't Mm -hmm. think to look or don't have 
an opportunity to look. Well, and another thing I was thinking about is why were they back there in the first place? Yeah, yeah. that's a good question. That, and that never got answered to me, and I've thought about that a lot over the years. And I, th- I honestly think that he had her back there dressed that way because they were going to meet a client. Oh, God. Oh, shit. Because there's no other reason for him to be back there. He didn't own the property. And she it's was two, 2 in the morning. And she's 2 in the morning, and she's dressed, you know, in these little tiny clothes, and she's just sitting there. And mm. they're sitting back there waiting for a client. He doesn't want people like that to come to his house because he knows what happened with a prostitute before. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to say, hey, you know, this guy's a weirdo. I know I'm a prostitute, but he's worse, way worse than I am. And I don't think anyone would not, not agree with that. But I honestly think that's what was going to happen. Someone was going to come and pick her up. Yeah. Or they had just dropped her off. There's times where the public says, you know, these cops are harassing me. This is a perfect example of the police are paid to be nosy. This piques his suspicion early on. It doesn't pique the recruit's suspicion because he doesn't have that kind of background where his filter is developed like Sergeant David is. But the cops are paid to be nosy, and they're paid to look into things a couple layers deeper than somebody might want, and it's all with good intentions. Their heart's in the right place. But when you pick up on that, something's not right. I need to do something about this. He writes an info report touches base with the detective, that's the follow-up. That's the good police work that develops into pulling this girl out of that environment. Yeah, I was just thinking that. I mean, thank God you were the kind of officer then and certainly now to trust that instinct enough to investigate it as opposed to your recruit who was still in training, of course, and his radar wasn't as attuned, so to speak, and he may have missed it. Well, hopefully that's what you pass on to recruits is you know, to trust your instincts because they're there for a reason. If a little hairs on the back of your neck stand up, then trust them. Don't worry about offending somebody at that time. You can apologize later if it ends up being totally bogus. But I knew that this was bad to the point where I wish I would have taken her. Right. What about Hank's parents? After you arrested Hank, did you ever go back to them and say, hey, she's not your granddaughter? I never did. Or do you think they were covering for him? As I remember, they were kind of protective of Hank. Because they obviously knew about his other prison term for being a pervert with a nine-year-old. So I'm kind of surprised that they, I kind of did the, I mean, some of you don't know who Columbo is, but Columbo was I a, do. Bumble, I do. <laughs> a bumbling detective who bumbled his way. But he did it for a reason. If Sometimes when you kind of act like you don't really know, you get the information that you want without alerting those people that you're, you're really digging into something that involves someone they might be protective of. And that's kind of what I did. I just act like I didn't know. I just, oh, I thought you guys, I looked at the tax records or something, and I thought you guys owned that. I must be got it too close, because this was pretty close to their house, actually. I'm curious. You and your recruit talk about this. So the there's the initial contact in the cul-de-sac, and obviously your radar's going off. Is the recruit really picking up? Is he starting to absorb what you're trying to give to him? I mean, he was really fresh and really green. And a lot of times recruits, you know, their coaches get on their ass about stuff like their officer safety stuff and things like that. So they're not, all they're worried about is what I'm thinking about what they're doing. So they want to impress, do, yeah. impress you. Sure. And, and I'm looking past all that. Once that happens that, you know, we got other stuff to do than worry about how you're standing by the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we really didn't talk about it a lot till it was all done. I wrote the report and then we talked about it. And I remember telling him, I said, this is going to be bad. I guarantee you. He actually agreed with me at that point. Now that he remembered her being out there on the school night and she was registered nowhere and basically there was no record of this little girl. That must have been a huge moment in his early career because I know that if that were me, 
I would have been like, holy shit, that was the moment when I learned a ton about policing. That we all do. I mean, I did. All those things that you do when you're in patrol and actually every day you're always learning something. You never know it all, but they shape your philosophy of what you do today. And this is actually one of the most satisfying cases I've ever been involved with. Not that the, I wish I would have found her when she was two because sure. when he was falsifying his, you know, the birth certificate. But, you know, the fact of getting her away from him, I think that he didn't get punished nearly enough. But but you followed a hunch. You followed that the hairs on the back yeah. of your neck yeah. and saved your life. This guy served a previous prison sentence. And a lot of people will talk about, you know, this guy got 50 years for all these crimes. How does that help? All we're doing as taxpayers is paying for this guy. Well, back then... We didn't have the sentences. Those charges that he was charged with on this case would have been over 30 years in prison, serve every day of it in our state nowadays. Back then, judges had a lot of discretion on what they were going to sentence someone to. So you might have one judge who's a little bit more liberal and and believes in people more and believes that they can be rehabilitated. I mean, this guy's already served a prison sentence. How much rehabilitation really went on when he was in prison? Or was he just waiting I need to get out so I can resume my activity. Or he's crafting his new plan. His new plan. Well, in his case, too, he shows up as this 50-some-year-old man in a wheelchair. How harmless am I? I'm not the boogeyman. Sure, how harmful uh, could he be? You know, what am I going to do? And what you just already did, you've already done it. And so, I mean, sometimes we need to punish a little more and forgive a lot less, I think, because that guy should have never been back out after the first one, actually. And the second time, for sure, he should have never been out. You know, And then to waste the time with the Court of Appeals for his parole hearing so he can drive through the county. To me, it's a travesty about our, what we're paying taxes for on this guy. I know he has got rights, and I totally respect that, but so does little Julie. She has a lot of rights that got taken away from her. So this girl, you think about what she experienced, and this guy... If you can treat just a human, even an adult, the way this guy was treating this girl, much less now you're treating a, a juvenile, a child, from the time that she was two or three all the way up until she's 10 or 11, if you can treat someone that way, is that person really rehabilitatable? Can you redeem that person? It's a question that I think is up for debate in, in people's, certain people's minds because they're not so exposed to these characters over and over and over and over And I again. think that's why the police, some will say they're, we're skeptics or cynics, but we are exposed to the worst of people. And people, when they're in jail, they always say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my life straight when I get out. This is the last time I'm coming back to jail. Certainly, there's a few situations where people go, okay, I'm not going back to prison, and they get their life right. But... We are realists. We understand that the nice, warm, fuzzy, the hug, oh, he's redeemed and he's saved because he went to prison and he learned his lesson. Those are few and far between with the people we deal with. Well, and you're risking the well-being of a child, of another victim, potentially. We passed over it fairly quickly, but you were talking about Hank and how Julie keeps getting older. Every year she gets older. And at some point, she's too old for him because he's got a wheelhouse, as my brother likes to call it, when he's interviewing these sex offenders, what's your wheelhouse? His wheelhouse is like five to 10-year-old girls. So she is going to get too old for him. Just like you said, he's not going to want her to give him up. He's going he's to kill her, throw her away. He's going to make sure that he can continue his activity because he doesn't care about her. He cares about her age demographic. Right, and what it does for him, whatever that does for him. And his 
clientele. That's one thing that never really got touched on, unfortunately, was his, I mean, there could have been some really good charges of compelling prostitution, taking a minor across state lines. I mean, this thing, this guy should never saw the light of day after he was hooked up for this thing originally. And I loathe to think about the customer base. Yeah. And that's one thing that I know now from my experience, we had been digging into that for years. Mm -hmm. We would have taken everyone we could in something like that. There's cases where I come into work and Sergeant David says, hey, I got one for you. Let's talk about it after briefing. Uh, And we make a project out of someone because we recognize, and I'm sure this touches on his experience, we're going to dig to the end of this case so we make sure that this guy gets everything he deserves. Because there's more than just the guy and probably the girl, small girl involved. Right. There's a bigger picture out there. Dave, I have a question for you. Given the level at which Julie was groomed, how long how long would that take? Dan touched on it already. The guy received a child in her formative years where she's just learning about life, and the only experience she has to draw on is what this guy exposes her to or what answers she's supposed to give. I'm sure that he had talked to her about, if we ever get contacted, this is the story that you tell. And she knows that when the recruit is speaking with Hank at the driver's window, that she's hearing all this. And she knows when she gets out to talk to Sergeant David, that she needs to parrot back exactly what the answers were. So at five, probably not as well rehearsed as she was when she was 11, but it's a process. These guys spend so much time, they'll spend years before they actually ever abuse the child because they want to make sure that they get this child to the point where when the abuse actually occurs, that the child's not going to reveal to anybody what happened. I would be willing to bet when he saw the police car pull around behind, he was already telling her what to say. And these are the people I told you about, Julie. Don't let him take you. Well, and you think about it too. He's been taking her across state lines to presumably rent her out to other men. Can you imagine her being in a room by herself with some strange man? And I would guarantee that you figure out pretty quickly how to think on your feet. If you're scared, you're able to talk your way around things. I mean, just the life experience that she was exposed to in those early years of her life, just out of survival, Mm. would be... Amazing. Which is why she was so adult-like when I talked to her. Right. Was he related to the nine-year-old girl that he had been uh, gotten a sex offense conviction against? No, he was not. And do we know if she lived with him as well? Uh, I don't know that, no. Mm. And I bet you there's some things he learned about that experience. That girl was not under his control. That girl had access and exposure to other people. That's how the disclosure probably came out. He learned when... The child gets around other people, they tell on me. So I'm not going to let the next one have any exposure to anybody, children and other adults, other adults that have a like mind as him. They want to sexualize this child. But she's not going to have any contact with the outside world because that results in him going to prison. And where is Hank now? Hank's dead. He died in 2007. What from? Well, I don't really know what his physical ailments were, but he would have been like 67, I think, at the time when, when he would have died. So it was some sort of natural, it's not like he took his own life. No. Thank goodness for minimum mandatory sentences coming around. Because I still cannot believe that he spent no more than five years in prison for buying a child, brainwashing her, and sex trafficking her for the first seven to eight years of her life. 
He spent less time in prison than he did years spent ruining her life. I mean, they're really light sentences. And I, I look at it now, uh, what people get for those kind of things, and I'm just thinking, this has to be wrong. And then I, I had to go back and do some research when we had this new ballot measure come through to get minimum mandatory sentences, and it was like three or four years after this incident. Was he registered this last go-around? Once he was back out in society, was he registered as a sex offender? That still hadn't taken place. That hadn't taken place either. Shit. So yeah. did anyone have a, an eye on this old only, only to the extent of what his parole was at the time, and he was off the parole from the original one when he purchased Julie. And so, it, it was—it's to me, it's a failure. That's why we have our sentencing measure because people don't trust the judges to be—you know—they get some lawyers put on a big show about things, and they just—they need to stick to the facts about things and look at the future and look who else might be victimized. Every parent who has somebody who's victimized by someone who's been released from prison for the same thing has to be just wondering what they're paying taxes for. Yeah, gutted. Small Town Dicks is produced by Zibby Allen and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Logan Heftel, Yardley Smith, and Zibby Allen. Music for the show was composed by John Forrest. Our associate producer is Erin Gaynor, and our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, head on over to smalltowndicks.com and become our pal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from our small town fam, so hit us up. Yeah, and also we have a YouTube channel where you can see trailers for past and forthcoming episodes. And we're part of Stitcher Premium now. That's right. If you choose to subscribe, you'll be supporting our podcast. That way, we can keep going to small towns across the country and bringing you the finest in rare true crime cases, told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. Thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you. <laughs>